This podcast is for information and illustrative purposes only. It does not constitute advice. Please refer to patricia.ag forward slash product specific country disclaimers for further information. High inflation, rising interest rates and geopolitical conflicts continue to challenge global economies. But in times of uncertainty, what role can technology venture capital play in providing investors with stability and growth? A top quartile venture capital fund will typically return about 15 to 25% IRR and a really great fund will return well north of 30%. I'm Ed Whitaker, and a warm welcome to the podcast, the podcast from Patricia, the leading investment manager and partner in global real assets. In this podcast, we offer you insights on a range of hot topics from the real assets industry, from important sector trends to key business developments and strategic decisions. In this episode, we take a deep dive into venture capital and examine the vital role it plays in delivering growth for investors during times of economic uncertainty. To help explain this, we chat to the partners of Sustainable Future Ventures Limited, Patricia's built environment, tech-focused venture capital strategy, which invests in early stage technology companies and closed its first 50 million euros of equity from investors earlier this year. We're able to provide technology market insights and opportunities for exciting technology adoption to Patrizia as, a, as an LP. That's Conan Lauterpat, partner at Sustainable Future Ventures, or SFE for short, who joins our conversation alongside his co-partner at SFE, Matt Shigan, who you heard from at the beginning. Hannes Junginger, CEO of Carbon Future, a digital marketplace for carbon removal projects, also joins our panel as we learn how VC investment in new startup technologies is absolutely essential for enabling a more sustainable built environment and putting us on the path to net zero. It's very important to look at the solutions at the technology which can deliver removal solutions uh, in the short term because we can't wait until we have fusion power and solve everything by energy. So, as investors continue to navigate a challenging economic landscape, why should venture capital be high up on their shopping list? Here's Matt. So for for those who might not be as familiar with the asset class, venture capital is investing in companies that have disruptive technology that investors believe will will be solving large problems and transform or substantially accelerate an industry. Fundamentally, it's a high risk, high reward approach. It typically plays out over a three to four year investment cycle and a roughly seven to 10 year hold period. VC investors you know, invest across the portfolio of companies. In our case, we expect to invest across roughly 20 to 25 investments, which helps us manage the risk. A top quartile venture capital fund will typically return about 15 to 25% IRR. And a really great fund, call it top decile, will, will return well north of 30%. So we think that SFV is particularly well suited for success in this current economic environment for three reasons. The first is fundamentally that target returns profile for venture capital is very high relative to other asset classes. So in in times like these where there's significant inflation, venture capital is one of the few asset classes that can provide real returns net of inflation. The second is fundamentally that five to 10 year return horizon should help us navigate the current macroeconomic and geopolitical headwinds. That whole period is irrespective of what's going on. So in times like these where there's um, a bit of turmoil, it, it's a bit of a safe haven because fundamentally you're not looking to get in and out of the uh, the assets. And the last is that uh, the trends we invest behind, you know, namely that technology transition 
and the drive to reduce greenhouse gas emissions are largely independent from that economic uncertainty. So fundamentally, we feel like there, there's a lot that's going on for that, that venture capital asset class that actually plays very well during these economic times. And Conan, turning to you, um, in addition to being a financially attractive investment, what are the core benefits of VC? There are really sort of two key non-financial benefits or non-directly financial benefits. The first is a general technology investment or venture capital investment benefit, which applies to to most venture funds and most investors in venture funds, which is really the insight that investing in early stage and disruptive or innovative technologies and business models gives you in terms of what is coming down the pipe and will ultimately impact your later stage private equity investing or your public market investing. So, you know, you basically get a first look at the innovative technologies and trends that are coming, and that can be very valuable as you consider your asset allocation and asset investments further down the pipeline. And then the second is really a benefit that applies more specifically to a sector-focused fund which is ultimately the detailed technical and solutions insight that you can gain from both looking at our active portfolio, but also from discussions with us around those investments that we don't invest in. Because ultimately, we as, a, as an investor in, in the built environment technology space are seeing you know, maybe a thousand solutions a year. And even if we choose not to invest in the vast majority of them, Many of those that we don't invest in may be very suitable as solutions for a real asset investor to deploy in their real asset portfolios. What about public markets? How does what we're reading about the tech sector impact what you're doing at SFE? Yes, over the last two plus years, public market valuations in the tech sector have been frothy, and that's trickled down to to company valuations in the venture capital markets. I think on the public market side, a lot of the correction that we've been seeing has been driven by subsegments of the market, like marketing dollars. That's been a big driver for a 30% drop in the price for Google and a 40% plus drop in the price for Alphabet. But while that valuation correction uh, in the public markets has trickled down to venture capital markets, those same fundamental points of correction around discretionary spending for marketing dollars uh, or advertising isn't really relevant. So we're, we're seeing this kind of disconnect where all of the companies in the space are getting whacked. But fundamentally, the drivers that we're focused on, like the drive to net zero, really don't have those same uh, discretionary elements to it. And so fundamentally, what we think we've got is a great opportunity to buy in at a temporary dip in the asset class, when fundamentally, we've got a three to five year hold period. So we've got an opportunity when we're exiting those businesses to be doing it in a very different environment. So, you know, we're really excited about this window that we've got right now. So we've learned why VC is such an attractive asset class for investors with potential returns of up to 30% IRR for the best performing funds. But what about the wider benefits of VC investing? Let's turn our attention to built environment technology and explore how it is creating smarter, cleaner and greener towns and cities of tomorrow with our communities being rapidly shaped by the four global megatrends of urbanization, digitalization, decarbonization, and demographic change, technology will be the key enabler for overcoming the challenges our communities face. 
So, how can VC investment accelerate the development of technologies to help us address these megatrends? Here's Codden. So, I, I suppose venture capital is really an, an enabler of technology innovation and development. And so, the question becomes really, you know, how, how can technology help with some of these major trends that are impacting real assets, real estate infrastructure? And of, of those, I guess, sort of four major trends, I think probably the two that I'll focus on now are really digitization and decarbonization. Digitization is, is a fairly easy one in the sense that real estate infrastructure and the broader real asset industry has have very low levels of digitization and technology adoption in them. It's been the case for and highlighted for the last almost decade and still remains the case. So things are improving. Uh, you know, it's hard to get accurate figures, but if you compare real estate as an asset class with the broader financial services market, you see that, you know, real estate operators and investors are spending perhaps 1% of their revenues on technology versus up to 10% in financial services businesses. So the level of, of digitization remains low. And so that presents very significant opportunities for technology to improve everything from cutting edge uh, problems using computer vision to improve how you monitor and manage construction sites through to far more basic solutions such as workflow tools, improving processes like deal management and transaction management in the real estate space, which are you know relatively low tech in the scheme of things, but can still drive very significant productivity and efficiency gains. But perhaps you know the more interesting opportunities I, as I see it now having been in, in the space for almost, almost a decade is the decarbonization or the environmental sustainability trend, which is forefront in, in everyone's minds. And in my mind is, is a real game changer in terms of, of forcing adoption and requiring technology. As many listeners will be aware, the built environment is responsible for 40% of, of carbon emissions. About 28% is, is associated with the operation of, of the built environment. And about 12% comes in the form of, of embodied carbon during the construction process. With that sort of impact on, on global carbon emissions, you know, the industry simply can't ignore the need to change and ultimately in order to enable that change the investment required in the industry is going to fundamentally reshape the economics of real estate you know ultimately for the industry to meet net zero targets it's going to cost tens of trillions of dollars of investment those are huge numbers and the estimates range range widely but the good news is that it's estimated that almost 90% of the required carbon reduction is achievable through existing and emerging technologies and best practices. And Matt, just on that point, what do you believe is one of the biggest challenges facing the real asset sector? Yeah, this this really drafts off of Conan's last point, which is that you know, one area we think is an absolute priority is retrofitting existing buildings to really dramatically lower their carbon footprint. I think you hear this in, in any conversation that comes up in the real estate space. And we, we get this both in terms of getting tenants to occupy those buildings. They want to occupy buildings that have a low carbon footprint. And also from potential buyers of the assets, whether it's pension funds or others, nobody wants a brown portfolio. They want a green portfolio. And the scale of the problem is massive. A lot of the technology that, that gets kind of the spotlight is around new builds, but fundamentally 70% of the the 2010 UK building stock is still going to be in use in 2050. So that that just creates a massive opportunity for folks that can help solve that problem. 
Great. And we're obviously recording this podcast while COP27 is taking place in Egypt with government leaders meeting to address the challenges of climate change. How important do you think it is for political leaders to engage with technology companies and the sector more broadly to drive change? Because I think there's been a broad recognition across governments in, in Europe and North America that technology is going to play a key part in solving climate change. The governments have come a long way in understanding how they can play a part in driving that rapid deployment of technology. I think COVID's actually been a really good example of that, where the governments obviously had a very acute time-sensitive problem, and they they solved it not by passing very detailed regulations, but but they established a large commercial opportunity, which is obviously that the purchasing of vaccines. They removed or reduced regulatory barriers and red tape, and the innovative companies fundamentally did the rest. So if you transfer that same formula to what we're tackling with climate change, which I I personally think is really the the ultimate problem for our generation, we're already seeing governments take a similar approach with bills like the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., which lays out hundreds of billions of dollars for new technologies like heat pumps and grid modernization. And it does it through incentives and through subsidizing manufacturing and putting in place large volume purchase orders. So while those numbers that you see in in the IRA in the U.S. are, are massive, we expect that to increase dramatically over the next five to 10 years. I also think that uh, the big shifts uh, are driven by government uh, programs ultimately because they shape the environment we are all operating in and and inform also the economic equations companies have to solve and then uh, act against. So absolutely key to stay close with the governmental programs. And uh, we really, uh, we are super excited about the developments in the US and the big steps that are taken with the IRA as we speak. We also see at the same time that these big programs are um, created in an environment where, like, for example, the oil and gas industry is very actively looking how they transform themselves and uh, while at the same time uh, staying viable as businesses. So we really have to have to see how fast these uh, development can help foster the decarbonization and, and what the what the ultimate also midterm results will be what i think is very exciting especially for for us as a as a startup in the carbon removal sector which is a subset of the carbon market and decarbonization efforts in in total is to develop as new tech companies frameworks that can um, inform in the other direction, right? So that we uh, show solutions that can really work to help scaling up uh, real and and effective carbon removals, and then be also adopted by government programs in um, the other way, right? That not the governments only inform what the private sector is doing, but but also the other way we, we are providing innovations and governments will adopt. I think that's a, a really good point, actually, in terms of the, the you know, the two-way information flow, that how it's incumbent on market participants to help inform and drive that governmental policy. Clearly, they, they play a large role. And it, I think it goes beyond simply the, the support and uh, regulatory frameworks that governments provide, but there are some pretty difficult problems that need to be re- resolved or at least balanced from a governmental standpoint, if we think about the challenge around, for instance, retrofit, that brings together really three almost conflicting themes. First, you have the need to decarbonize, 
The second is you have the need to create affordable and promote affordable housing in a time of rising rising costs and an affordability crisis. And then the third, you have the need to do this whilst balancing that with responsible development. So effectively, you have affordability planning and decarbonisation coming together. And in many times, you see those those three drivers conflicting with each other. And the government tries a government agency or body tries to push one, and it, it upsets the balance with regards to the other two. Colin, just turning back to technology for a moment, how receptive do you think the real estate industry is to the adoption of technology solutions? And what do you think is driving this? The response within the real asset industry to technology over the last decade or so has been has been mixed. You know, we've been talking and, and I, I started out my career in the space focused on trying to sell technology solutions. We were looking at and excited about the opportunity for adoption back as, you know, 2012, 2013. And the reality is looking back over the last decade, it has been it has been slower than we'd hoped. And actually where we have seen technology adoption move the quickest has really been with new entrants to the market so people who are trying to differentiate themselves on the basis of of technology and really the largest institutional players who are able to look not just at their real asset portfolios but at equities and fixed incomes and compare across and really identify the deficiencies in the use of technology in the real asset space and want to try and bring it up to the same level as they see in their other other asset portfolios. And in between those new entrants and the, the largest institutional players, you know, adoption has been, I would say, has been disappointing. However, quite apart from the obvious environmental benefits, that is the reason why I think the decarbonisation drive is so exciting from a pure technology investment standpoint, because ultimately we have a net zero agenda, which is, which is unavoidable uh, and which is, as I, as I said before, is being pushed by multiple stakeholders in the space and that ultimately if you end up with a brown portfolio you will end up with a higher cost of capital lower rental yields and impaired valuations and those are metrics that everyone in the industry understands and everyone will be aligned to protect and manage as we've heard vc is essential for shaping a more sustainable built environment but there are still many challenges to overcome SFE is one of the VC strategies leading this charge, investing in truly innovative technology companies that all share the same ambition, to make a positive impact on our planet. Here's Conan to explain the three critical skill sets that he believed made this an exciting opportunity to launch a VC strategy focused on the built environment. The first of those being operational experience, growing and scaling an early stage technology business. The second, understandably being long institutional technology investment experience. And then the third was to bring together the insight and value add of a real asset operator. And that was it's great to do it within the, within the Patrizia framework and have access to the specialist Patrizia teams across both the real asset businesses and within the, within the technology group. And Conan, from, from your perspective, how does SFE make us more relevant for its LPs? So I think if I look at that first from a Patrizia standpoint, we're able to provide technology market insights uh, and opportunities for exciting technology adoption to Patrizia as, a, as an LP. And so in, in turn, Patrizia's LPs benefit from that technology insight they're able to provide to Patrizia. But equally then, of course, 
for LPs coming into SFB directly, we're able to provide those same insights to them. And, you know, that can be, as I mentioned earlier, that's a, that's a range, of, that's a spectrum from investors who are primarily financial with a little bit of strategic all the way through to investors that are primarily strategic with a little bit of financial and, and quite how much you, you rely and are interested on those insights uh, really be based on what, where you sit in that spectrum. Maybe uh, allow myself to chip in as well and give a perspective from investee, from a startup. To us, it's uh, the combination of uh, SFV as a, as a VC and clear financial investor with having uh, Patricia as, as LP in the background uh, is very attractive. Because on, on the one side, you have SFV with all the, uh, the professional expertise, being an experienced, seasoned um, investor and being partner here, for example, when it comes to board discussions, uh, to strategic um, decisions, you, you always have to take as a startup in, along your, your growth journey. And at the same time, you have the relation to, to Patricia, you, you have introductions there and get uh, market feedback very, very directly. Yeah? You can test uh, your hypothesis. You can talk in a kind of friendly environment uh, and at the same time, very professional environment and, and get immediate feedback on your offerings, on your products and factor that in so that accelerates our development significantly. And also, as I said before, opens doors into uh, into a sector, into the real estate sector, and yeah, which is which is massive and has a has a huge challenge ahead. So it's very attractive for startups as well. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the other companies that are in the SFV portfolio? Yeah, I can kick off with with Lufthango. Um, I think Lufthango is a great example of a company that was led by customer needs. You know, Lufthango started off with an, an algorithmically based solution for route optimization for municipal buses, which is just a fancy way of saying that they helped buses be more efficient in picking up their passengers through a dynamic route as opposed to driving the same straight line route every day. You know, the company saw a really interesting adjacent opportunity with corporations that were struggling to get employees to warehouses, distribution centers, or corporate offices that might not have easy access to public transportation. And for companies that were really struggling to get em employees from a hiring standpoint, this was a, a very critical need. Uh, and something that Patrizia heard loud and clear from, from its, its uh, tenants as well. So Lufthansa did a great job of following that corporate need and moving into that adjacent market. And that's really turbocharged the company's growth. And they brought on great clients like Tesla, Nike, Ikea, Lufthansa, and others. Great. And Conan, maybe you can tell us a bit about G-Builder. So G-Builder is ultimately a solution in the construction technology space, really designed at improving the buyer experience for buyers buying residential units. It's purchased primarily by real estate residential developers who want to offer their end customers, those buyers, an experience more akin to how you buy a car than how you traditionally buy a house. And it does that really in two key ways. Uh, the first is by providing HD, 3D visualizations of every unit in a development. So rather than the traditional approach of simply receiving some sort of plan and maybe some fixed images of what your apartment's going to look like, it provides at a unit level using using BIM and, and a gaming engine uh, the ability to create digital visualizations of, of every unit. And then 
through its very close integration with, with BIM, it allows buyers at the configuration stage, so once they have their apartment, they want to finish it, to configure the apartment with a much greater accuracy, transparency on price and detail than you would in a traditional uh, purchase scenario. Uh, and in so doing, reduces wastage and improves the potential developer margin because of the ability to more easily upsell configuration and, and materials. And the, the third of the four portfolio companies is Modulus. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Modulus, I guess, in many ways, is at the very heart of the opportunity that we see within the built environment space. It is a modular housing platform, which combines factory-free modular. So this is these are modular units which don't require a factory to be manufactured, but instead use a supply chain, a digitized supply chain to bring components together, 1,200 components together into seven panels, uh, which allows those panels to be delivered to multiple sites and multiple geographies without the capex requirements of, of a factory. And it combines that physical product with a digital design tool which enables the more efficient design and feasibility and costing of the buildings that are constructed from those modular units. And that, and that for me, really is at the heart. It's this bringing together of the physical and the digital in the built environment, which is where we see the greatest opportunities. And the fourth portfolio company is Carbon Future. And Hannes, you're the CEO there. Can you tell us a bit more about what your company does? So basically... It's carbon removal, meaning uh, taking out CO2 of the atmosphere and storing it safely over long term. That's the, the sector we are in. And uh, what do we do exactly here? Our goal is to provide trust into this uh, new industry in order to make it financeable and thereby uh, enable scale, right? So as Matt said, this is a very nascent sector, which is just in the uh, about to, to get started. It's um, in total quite tiny globally, but it will grow massively because all actors, all economic actors uh, globally are faced with the same challenge ultimately and, and companies that go along further in this journey will be more and more going forward. So it's a, it's a tiny, tiny market that will grow massively for sure. So when we look at our current client base, we see uh, first movers like Microsoft, Swissery or Klarna, which um, have set up their, their own programs. They have almost research teams that look into this uh, early stage nascent market and explore projects globally and uh, and make their choices and we um, with our solutions we we have been chosen amongst um, like 10 or 20 others globally and so that's kind of the the mission we are uh, we are up to and what is really the the differentiator or what is unique in what we are doing i think when when you look at the um, at the projects that are out there they are uh, focusing on the one side of uh, on technologies, physical technologies to be developed, and then issue carbon credits and be subsidized that way. And that's very much in a in a way like uh, the traditional carbon markets are set up, like a, a donation or pro bono um, programs uh, subsidized by by companies or or also private individuals. However, when you think about the scale 
that we are looking into when the industry um, industry is growing. So we are looking at like gigatons of CO2 to be removed from the atmosphere in the coming decades. And that is a, a billion or even trillion dollar market going forward. So in order to support this market, we need to provide tools that make it auditable and, and transparent and trustworthy. And that's what Carbon Future is about. So, Hannes, from Carbon Futures perspective, how does technology uh, fit within your business? Our two product suites we are encompassing, one is this, uh, what I call sometimes carbon tracing solution, uh, monitoring reporting solutions, which document what is actually done in the value chains. And then we have as a second uh, element, uh, an integrated marketplace. It's not a marketplace where you can buy and sell just everything. It's really those uh, activities which have been certified based on the digital uh, carbon tracing tools we we have in place uh, you can also bring to the market and and then uh, either monetize or account for it uh, within your own operations this is obviously uh, really the scalable part right because it can be rolled out to to multiple players even to multiple sectors and and there's no uh, no barrier to roll it all out globally and provide it to other other removal technologies like enhanced weathering or even direct air capture. You're coming at this from the lens of Patrizia, which, which is a public company and very focused on the social responsibility of carbon reduction as opposed to you know, any sort of greenwashing and really looking at this from the venture capital lens, which is where is the market going to be in three to five years we were very deliberate in selecting Carbon Future as a company focused on carbon reduction versus carbon offsets. Maybe that's something you can touch on a little bit because it wasn't something that I necessarily understood when I started looking at the market, but is a really important differentiator in what Carbon Future does versus what others folks may read about. Yeah, I mean the classical offset market uh, had its right in the like in the in the past twenty years, where uh, we had a lot of uh, fossil emissions, for example, from the energy sector, and the idea was to like uh, achieve emission reductions uh, where they are they are most affordable economically. So that was the the idea of the the classic offset market and and the Kyoto Protocol. So. What was out there was like renewable energy projects, for example, in um, developing countries, uh, setting up wind parks in in India or geothermal uh, power plants in in Turkey or so, and subsidize that by yeah by credits bought from uh, from industry players in, for example, Europe, and this is. While it is kind of a, a reasonable tool, it showed that it's uh, in the end uh, not bringing us where where we have to be, right? And when you look a bit more deeply into the the programs that are out there, a lot of them are are reasonable and and he really helpful. But uh, to substantiate a net zero or climate neutral claim with these programs is is quite quite tricky. So there is a a classical or uh, like Swiss Re put it out is uh, one ton emitted plus one ton not emitted elsewhere still equals one ton emitted, right? One plus zero equals one. So what has to be done in order to achieve net zero is really remove uh, carbon from the atmosphere, store it safely and thereby have a, a negative emission. And that is what we call carbon removal or neutralization credits or, or negative emissions. And Hannes, what sort of technologies can be used for carbon removal? There are like a handful of technologies that are known today. 
either they are based on biomass, right? So the, the, the removal part of this of the projects is done by plants, photosynthesis. And usually when you have plants, they are part of a short-lived carbon cycle. So they, they rot and emit uh, CO2 back to the atmosphere and, and methane and, and other greenhouse gases. Or they are used therm um, yeah, energetically. They are burned to, to heat, for example. So when you avoid that, either by capturing the CO2 from the exhaust gases, which is called bioenergy carbon capture and storage, or by pyrolyzing it and make, a, make biochar out of it and, and put it in soil, in agriculture applications, or in concrete, for example, in the built environment, can store it safely. And there are other solutions like direct air capture. You might have uh, can come across it's quite popular um, in the in, in the last months and, and years where you have big fans and, and air filters and filter out CO2 from, from ambient air chemically and, and store it then geologically. So Hannes, what sector of carbon capture are you most active in? We have a strong anchor in, in biochar, which is like pyrolyzed residual biomass and then uh, applied in, in some carbon preserving way, either in soils or in the built environment. So we are really supporting this uh, sector because we feel it is the one technology which is already, yeah, technology readiness level is high and uh, which is already out there and scaling. I think it's very important to look at the solutions, at the technology which can uh, deliver removal solutions uh, in the short term because we don't have time, right? We can't wait until we have uh, fusion power and, and solve everything by energy. That is not the way. Um, at the same time, of course, we need to invest in, in uh, such future technologies, but we also need to do what is at hand now. So we are really looking uh, into these biochar value chains and, and other solutions which are uh, closely related to existing um, existing value chains, especially in the built environment, because you can, for example, apply biochar in concrete. You can also use CO2 captured from other sources. And if it uh, should be a removal, it had, has to be ultimately atmospheric sources. So for example, from a biogas uh, power plant or from, from bioenergy power plants, you can use this CO2 and apply it in recycled concrete through mineralization processes. So there are a lot of technologies which are really just kicking off, just starting. And so I think it's also high, really highly, highly relevant for, for the sector Patricia is, is operating in. Thank you to our guests, Conan, Matt and Hannes. And thank you for listening. I'm Ed Whitaker, and you've been listening to the podcast from Patrizia. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to head over to our website, patrizia.ag, to find out more. Stay safe and healthy. Until next time. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 